All right, everybody, I'm glad to see you all tonight. We're glad to have you this evening. We are going to be beginning tonight a study of the book of Daniel. So open your Bibles there in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. It's one of the so-called major prophets, which makes it distinct from the minor prophets, only in the length of it. Minor prophets are small. The major prophets are the big ones. Sorry about the space issues. <laughs> I think we'll be all right. Um, so a couple of uh, introductory comments, really introductory to the introductory. I'll get to the introduction here in a second. Um, it's an Old Testament book, obviously. These, these are different, you know, sort of books than the New Testament. But if you're going to study an Old Testament book to have it be like if you're only kind of familiar with New Testament studies, the, the prophets are the most like studying a New Testament book because they're written with some apocalyptic language, with some kind of stylized poetic imagery, but it's written in a similar structure to like the writings of Paul. So if you study the writings of Paul and you study the epistles or even, even the gospel accounts, the historical Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and, and Acts that follows, they're very similar. Um, so it's it can be kind of daunting. You talk to Christians who are just beginning a Bible study life uh, maybe they're new Christians or what have you, and they say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable jumping into Acts, or I'm comfortable jumping into Matthew or Luke, but that Old Testament is scary. Well, it's really not that scary if you just take it a little bit at a time and you just pause for the occasional reminder of the context, the year, the setting, what's going on, who is talking, to whom are they talking, when are they talking, why are they talking. Keep reminded of those things, and it's easy um, to get through these needed studies. We need to study the Old Testament more. Um, those things written aforetime were written for our learning, Paul says in Romans, that we through patience and comfort of those, those scriptures might have the hope that we have in Christ today. We know who we are. We know where we came from because the Old Testament pointed the way. So we need to have more study of the Old Testament. That being said, I don't know if you noticed, those Old Testament books can run kind of thick. Now you can study Ephesians four, five, six weeks. You can study Ephesians if you stretch it out, maybe even get a quarter uh, of good study out of it. There are 12 chapters of Daniel, and it is the shortest of the major of the big prophetic books. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not getting through this book in 12 weeks. I'm, there's no way. I could. I could talk even faster than I normally do, and we could just kind of skim and breeze over, and I could just basically give you just a glorified outline of the book, but you can get a glorified outline of the book on YouTube. Just go to the Bible Project, look up their video on Daniel. It's excellent. Good little summary. I can give you a six-minute summary. I can give you a 12-week summary, but I would rather just teach you the text, even if it takes us multiple, multiple weeks. Now, this is a 13-week quarter. We'll have the day up before Thanksgiving. We'll be in an auditorium having singing like we always do. So we have 12 weeks this quarter. I am not bound to that. Uh, we will probably, by the end of this quarter, technically be at like chapter 9. So probably, hopefully, Lord willing, the end of the year we'll finish this book. If that means you're planning, if you have a schedule to teach next quarter and you're going to miss it, I'm really, really sorry. I'll get you the material. It'll be recorded online. But um, I would rather... I would rather just teach it as long as it takes to teach it and do it justice as best as I can do it justice. I'm sure there's some phenomenal teacher who could do it justice in 12 weeks, but he ain't me. Um, the other thing is, it doesn't matter how long I've been teaching Bible classes. It doesn't matter how many times I've taught a particular book or whatever it is. I always am nervous on week one starting it fresh. So 
you know, it, you, it'll get better is all I'll say. All right. Introduction to Daniel. Everything that I said about how easy the Old Testament books are does not apply to the book of Daniel. Daniel is the hardest. It's not that bad. It is the hardest of the major prophet books because there are big chunks of it that are steeped in apocalyptic imagery. The same kind of writing style that is found in the book of Revelation. So that kind of heavy emphasis on vivid imagery and, you know, uh, heightened uh, poetic, you know, prose. That kind of style of writing that is not found really anywhere else is found also here. And it's a great companion to Revelation, which was the last Bible book that I taught here several months ago. So it makes for a good companion to it, but it's still it's its own book. It just has those moments where you just kind of have to zoom out and study it like you study Revelation, which is to say, what's the big picture? Zoom in as best as I can and understand the details, but never lose sight of the end, uh, end goal. Um, so if it's similar to Revelation in that sense, what I said about Revelation in week one of that class applies here, which is, yes, it can be hard sometimes, but it can be understood. You can, you can know what the book of Daniel uh, is all about in the big picture and even when you zoom in, in the smaller level. Um, the other big challenge to this book is how it is very much not written in chronological order. Just for giggles, here is how you would study the book if you were to study the book chronologically. You would start with the first four chapters, that's fine, but then you skip to chapters 7 and 8, then double back to chapters 5 and 6, then take the following chapters in this order, 11, 10, 12, and then 9. Got all that? All right. Write that down. It's on the test at the end of the quarter. Daniel lived through the captivity of his people. Uh, he was so old that when he died, he was able to have lived through the lifespan of multiple kings. Uh, and he recorded many of their um, more famous moments in his book. Seven Babylonian rulers well, were came and went under his, his, his watch, his time, if you will. Nabopolassar, 626 to 606 BC. In the BC, you count down. Nebuchadnezzar, 606 to 562. Evil Merodach, 562 to 560. Uh, Negrolisser, 560 to 556. Labasi Marduk, 556 to 556, he didn't last long. Nabonidus, 555 to 539. And Belshazzar, 555. Oh, I said 555 to 539. Oh, they, they were co-regents. That's right. So they ruled together, um, he and his son. Oh, and not only that, that's just the Babylonians. Then you get to the, the uh, Persians. When the Persians took over, uh, he lived under the reign of Darius and Cyrus. So he just, he saw... A lot. In fact, he was there even before the Babylonians. He was there under the, the last king of Judah when the Babylonians conquered them. So he lived through the entirety of one of the most traumatic periods in Judean history. And if you ever study Judean history, like every 10 years, is a traumatic period. And Daniel lived through, other than like the, the period of time in Egypt, the worst period of time uh, in their history as a people, at least from a national standpoint. He saw it. And he recorded a big chunk of it. It's just he didn't record it chronologically because that's not the point of his book. Daniel is not a history book. It has a lot of history. The whole first half of it really is history based. But Daniel is not written to be a history book. Daniel is written to give you just snippets and insights into what's going on during his time to tell you one big point. And that one big point is God is in control of this world. And even though evil men do evil things, and sometimes evil rulers, evil men become evil rulers and do evil, powerful things and, and take advantage of the people over whom they rule, 
God is still ultimately in control. When nations rise, it is by His will. When nations fall, it's by His design. And if you, if you keep that core kernel of an idea in mind, in life, not just in study of this book, but in life, it helps you exponentially get through what, I don't know if you've noticed, can be a sometimes very difficult world in which to live. And you have a government rises that you oppose and a government falls and you're happy for a while then a bad one takes over and you think, well, I prayed for the good one and now the bad ones take over. Does God not hear my prayers anymore? No, it's just God is not so narrow-minded as to raise and fall empires just based on your you know, 60 year of praying for whatever empire you want in power. God has a bigger picture in mind. Daniel, who lived through seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven different kind of regimes, he's the best guy to say. Through all of that, God is the one constant. Through all of those rises and fallings and power changes and good kings and bad kings, God is the only constant. You mark the time with God. He's the only one that never changes. About him, the man himself, Daniel, his name ends in E-L, and that's a clue that it has something to do with God in the Hebrew. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Um, he seems to be of some, some kind of connection to the royal family, a, a distant relative, some kind of royal, uh, royal of speech impediment, uh, heritage. Um, that's partially thought to be because Isaiah predicted that the king's family would be taken into exile uh, among the first ones to go. And that's exactly what happened, uh, that they would be made eunuchs to the Babylonian rulers. Uh, Isaiah 39 predicted that. And Daniel 1, which we will get to here in a little bit, um, bears that out. He was carried into Babylon with basically like the best of the best. There were a lot of people left over, and you study Ezekiel to read about what's going on with them. But with Daniel's time period, that first wave of people in exile, that a lot of them were just some of the very best ones um, left in Judah. Which That's not saying much, but they were among the cream of the crop. Three in particular, along with Daniel, are very famous. You know them because of the story, the account of the fiery furnace, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We'll get to them in a little while. This all happens, um, the carrying away, in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign, sometime between 606 and 605 BC. He was probably a teenager, between 15 and 18, that is to say. But he would live well into his 80s, if not longer. In fact, the, famous, the other famous account in Daniel of Daniel in the lion's den often depicted of a child in the lion's den. I mean, he would have been gray-haired. He was old by that point. Um, so like I say, he did a lot and lived a long time. As you know, they were given Chaldean names. Hanani, Mishael, Nazari, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel's name, who knows it? Anybody remember Daniel's Babylonian name? Belteshazzar, exactly. So Daniel's name means God is my prince. Bel, El, El, and Daniel implies something to do with God. God is my prince. Bel, Teshazzar, implies something to do with the false god Bel, and sure enough, his name means Bel's prince. God is my judge, Bel is my prince, or I am the prince of Baal. Um, when we get to those other three, we'll see there was some intentional thematic connection between their real name and their pagan names. He is described, as you study the book, and we'll see this borne out, uh, both specifically and just by reading the way he lived, as a man of great conviction, of flawless character, of Staunch uh, unwillingness to compromise. If there's one trait, it's that. There's, it's so easy and convenient. For example, as we'll get to it in several weeks, the bow down before the, uh, the golden idol or be thrown in the furnace. It would have been so easy at that moment for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, when everyone is bow bowing, to conveniently bend down and tie their sandals. And just think to themselves, well, I didn't bow. I was just tying my shoes. It just looked like it. But no, 
they following the example of David, they staunchly stood firm, stood up, stood tall, and said, we're not, we're not going to bow. And if you kill us, fine, we're still not going to bow. Uh, and that level of conviction is, is a major thing throughout the book. It's why, even though Daniel, for a lot of the book, is an old man, it's such a great book to teach young people. Because it teaches you about how you're going to be in this wicked world, peer pressured, and yet stay true to your faith and convictions. And suffer for it, and then be rewarded later. It's the end suffer for it part where people get tripped up. They think, I want to stand up for my convictions and then get a get out of jail free card too. Like, I want to say, no, I don't want this, and then I don't want to suffer the consequences. Well, that's not, that's not how Daniel lives his life. Who is the author of the book of Daniel? I will pose it to the class. Who is the author of the book of Daniel? Exactly. You'd be surprised how many modern critics of the Bible argue with someone else. It's because he writes so much prophecy. They think surely some other dude must have written this. But no, it was, it was Daniel. Just prophecy is one thing God does. If you don't believe in God, that's fine. I'm, just, I'm sick of these false teachers who say they believe in God, but say the Bible doesn't have any prophecy. Like if you believe in God, that's just nothing to him. Just why not go all the way or one way or the other? But yes, Daniel wrote it. Jesus alludes to the, the writing of Daniel and calls him Daniel the author. Daniel wrote it. As I said, the purpose of the book is not to give you history. I'm almost done with the intro. It's not to give you a biography of the author. It is to show the superiority of the God of Israel over the kings and kingdoms of this world and the control of the God of Israel to do with them as he pleases to carry out his divine will. It's written to show God's willingness to use his providence, his providential guidance, sometimes his miraculous intervention to accomplish that plan. Sometimes for and with other nations and sometimes against or opposed to other nations. It's written to show that God is in control over the force of nature and his, he has mastery over this world that he made. And it's written to show that he is, as we'll see, slowly preparing this uh, Old Testament world for the arrival of the Messiah and his kingdom. Now, let me give you the outline of the book and then we'll study it. This is what's really neat, okay? Maybe you've already, maybe you've already considered this. I don't know. But here's the outline for the book of Daniel. All right. The outline for the book of Daniel is uh, a bow and arrow. What do you call it? I know this is the bullseye. Just a target? Target, yeah. It's a target. All right. This is how you know the outline for the book of Daniel. There's three layers, three rings. All right. This, is, this book is written in a writing style that is not written in the Western culture. But it was very common in Eastern cultures. It was an Eastern writing style. And it only appears here in the book of Daniel and at the end of the book of 2 Samuel. Now let me give you that just as an introduction to this style, okay? First and 2 Samuel really is just the, the writing of, Sam, of the book of Samuel. It's just the big history of King Saul's rise and fall and David's rise, mistakes, and ultimate, you know, victory. Um, so that's first and 2 Samuel. But because it mostly concerns those two kings, it ends in the last handful of chapters, like chapter 21 through 24, it ends with this very detached sort of um, non-chronological, separated from it all, kind of breakdown of various little moments in time. They, like, they serve like, um, like the appendices at the end of the Lord of the Rings, right? It's just these, here are some random things that those kings did. And you're reading and you think, well, why am I getting this here? Why didn't you insert these, you know, chronologically where they fit? It's because those last few chapters of 2 Samuel are written in this kind of style to kind of give you a complete picture of who these guys were and what you learned as you studied them in the course of what we call 1 and 2 Samuel. So, for example, in 2 Samuel 21 
let's say A, the beginning of chapter 21, and also 2 Samuel 24, at the beginning and at the end of that text, you get the same thing. You get Saul's failures as a king and David's failures as a king. Fail. Fail. All right? Thematic. Beginning and end. You could even put it like this, too. Like, here's fail, fail. All right? But then on the inside, this inside ring, here's another one. You get It's in 2 Samuel 20, the end of 21 and 23. That makes sense. 2 Samuel 21b and 2 Samuel 23. You get accounts of David versus, I'm going to put Phil, but I don't mean the dad from Fresh Prince. I mean Philistines. David versus Philistines. You get accounts of David versus the Philistines. Again, thematic. If you're reading them chapter by chapter, you would think, well, why isn't this earlier? Why, why, why is it the end of 21 and 23 to put together? It's because it's written in this ring style. So you get David versus, versus Philistines. All right? But then in the middle, you get a completely different thing. Right there in the middle of text, which is the encompassing of verse uh, chapters 22 and 23, 22 through 23. Right there in the middle, you get odes. Odes to God. To God. So if you're reading this as it goes, chapter by chapter, you get a picture of Saul's failure as a king, some accounts of David versus the Philistines, some praise to God, more of David versus the Philistines, and then David's failures as a king. You think, well, that's out of order. But no, if you read it like that, it's out of order. But if you lay it on top of each other, do you see how it works with rings? You see that? That is the entire book of Daniel, okay? So let's take it like this. Daniel chapter 1, which I promise we're about to get to. I'm not sure how many rings there are, so we'll start here. Daniel chapter 1 is about them going into exile. The end of Daniel, which is really, this is chapter 1. Daniel chapters 9 through 12. I think it's 9 embarrassing if I forget. No, yeah, it's not the Joel. His prophecies about them getting out of exile. Now there's more to be found here, but the overall picture is this. Going into exile, getting out of exile. Alright, that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, and also chapter 7 and 8. You remember some things that happened in chapter 2? Well, you've got the account of the big statue with the golden head and the bronze and so forth. And what is that a picture of? All the various kingdoms of the world and the great kingdom of Jesus that is going to come as a result. Pictures of the kingdom to come. Guess what's in chapter 7 and 8? Pictures of the kingdom to come. Here in the middle of the text, chapter... No, there's another ring. Chapter 3 and chapter 6. Oops, 6. Remember what happens in chapter 3? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as the pagans called them are tossing the fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death. What happens in chapter 6? Daniel stands up to the king, is tossing the lion's den, but God delivers from death. And then here in the middle of the bullseye, which in other words is, what is the point? What have you been learning? What are you seeing? Chapter 4 and chapter 5, God is in control of the kingdoms. I don't know why, I borrowed it right on the board. God is in control is the theme of chapter 4 and is the theme of chapter 5. Most famously, that is the text where you read about um, uh, the most high rules in the kingdoms of men. That is like the thesis statement of the whole book. But see, if you, if you read them in order, 
If you just go through them by, one by one, which you shouldn't do anyway because it's not chronological, but let's say you don't know that, you're just reading chapter 1 through chapter 12, you get some texts about them going to exile, you get the prophecies about the kingdom, Daniel being delivered, you get some texts about, in a couple of chapters, how God's really over the kingdoms, you get another account of God delivering his people, you get more prophecies about the kingdom, you get more promises about the exile they're in, that they're going to get out of. And it just feels disconnected, and it is when you read it that way, when you look at two-dimensionally, but if you look at it this way, what do you see? You see how he is creating this spiral with a bullseye in the middle telling you the theme of the book. God is in control over the kingdoms of men. That's what the book of Daniel is all about. Okay? Now let's, now let's study. Open up to Daniel chapter 1. Let's start in verse 1. <clears throat> Daniel 1.1. 1, 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, everything I just said here, fine, true, but you can also take the whole book of Daniel and you can cut it in half. You have history over here, you have prophecy over here. The first six chapters have prophecy, but they're mostly about history. The latter six chapters have history, but they're mostly prophecy. So let's begin the historical kind of side of the book of Daniel. All right. Um, what does he say? Well, first he gives you the when. When are we in this text? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And that happens, the terrible king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, comes and lays siege to the holy city. Jehoiakim was the eldest of Josiah's sons. He was a wicked king. We learn in Jeremiah 36. He was so wicked that as God prophesies his death, never a pleasant thing to hear when God does that, he says, you're going to be buried like a dead donkey. In other words, you get no honor, no distinction. We're just going to throw you in a hole, or they're going to throw you in a hole because you're going to be um, ignominious. So um, early in his rule, he um, is subdued by Egypt and is, becomes a vassal state to Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes them from there. Verse 2. Verse 2, Daniel. That's the time frame. And the Lord gave, oh, by the way, it says the third year as the Babylonians reckon it. They keep their, start their years and end their years in a different part in the calendar. So the Jews reckoning will be the fourth year. For the Babylonians, it's the third year. All right. Daniel 1, 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. The fall of Judah's kingdom. Right off the bat, we're given a, a, a clear reminder or we're given a, um, a hint as to the thought process of God. How does God frame the fall of his holy city? His capital city. I mean, his house is there, built by Solomon, right? You have the house of God in the city of God, in the heart of the nation of God, which was part of the united kingdom of God before they split, and God's half was the more faithful of the two. But how does God picture it? He says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Who is in control, despite how evil it is, despite how terrible this situation is, God is ultimately in control. The people persistently transgressed. The people thumbed their nose at God. The people were asking for it, and God gave it to them. He didn't want to. He says that repeatedly in the book of Ezekiel. But they left him with no option. They didn't want to repent, so they must be punished. So his opening uh, text, these, these first couple of verses, they give you more than just like a prelude, um, more than just an introduction to his part of the story. It's, it's a setup for the whole book itself. Here's the situation that we're in. Here's this terrible thing. 
but God is in control. God put us in, so if we learn the lesson, will not God also take us out? No one should be so arrogant, as we move on to the next verse, as to think um, your kingdom will never fall. Because I guarantee you the people of Judah, as much as they stopped worshiping God, stopped being faithful to God, barely gave God even you know a, um, uh, a token offering of worship, barely even gave them the time of day, in the synagogue or in the Sabbath on the Sabbath day, barely even gave them an offering and so forth. They still would not have said, if you said to them, you know, if you keep this up, you're going to be conquered. No, we're, we're the nation of God. Meanwhile, I'm going to go throw my baby into the fires of Molech. I'm going to go offer my sacrifices to my false gods, but I'm still God's person. And America, it, and you're going to get a lot of this in this class because it's the application. America is even more arrogant than they were. And we worship God as a nation less than they did. And we have even more pagans pagan gods than they did and yet we have even more pride as to think oh god will never take us down god needs us we're his nation no the church is his nation and we're everywhere so anyway so he, he god proves that point here he makes that point in the outset of this book and he defeats judah he defeats jerusalem and he even allows nebuchadnezzar into his holy place into his tabernacle to take his holy vessels out and what happens to those holy vessels? You have the, the golden menorah. You have the table of the showbread. You have the Ark of the Covenant and the precious items found therein. You have the brazen labor outside the temple. You have all these precious objects that meant everything to the people. Even when they weren't worshiping God, it had become almost a God unto themselves. What happened to them? I know Indiana Jones goes looking for the Ark and he finds it and so forth. But in reality, what actually happened? Probably... That thing, which was just a wooden box covered in gold, was just melted down, and they took the gold, and they burned the wood. What happened to the menorah? Probably it was placed in the, you know, temple, as it said originally, a place in the temple of, of Nebuchadnezzar's God. Because if there's one thing that those pagan conquerors did, when they took over land, they went straight to their temples. And most of them had multiple temples to multiple gods. And they took as many precious items as they could, and whatever seemed like it was too priceless to just melt down, they would place in their temples as a way of saying, here's a trophy for my God. My, my God would wear your God's you know, greatest object as sneakers. That's how much greater my God is than your God. So Nebuchadnezzar has this mindset that Baal is so much greater than Jehovah because he's been allowed to go into Jehovah's holy place, take Jehovah's holy items and just toss them at the feet of Baal. Of course he would think that he's gonna get a rude awakening later in this book. But that's what he thinks so far. And God is allowing that to happen. And I'm sure there are some guy in Judah, some guy out there saying, God has abandoned us because, look, they've taken the holy artifacts. No, you abandoned God. You made those holy things unholy. So what are they to God then? Nothing. Verse 3. And the king spoke, this is Nebuchadnezzar, king spoke to Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. So bring me some of the royal um, heritage of the king. These would have been the most well taken care of. These would have been the most precious commodity of the land. Bring them here and we're going to make them eunuchs. We're going to make them servants in the court of the king. Very common. This is not an unusual thing um, in an ancient conquest. Key prisoners, especially royal prisoners to be taken. The, I don't know how you picture it. I hope you don't have the idea that if I'm Nebuchadnezzar and I conquer a land, I'm not going to go in and just murder everybody. That's, you know, like the Hitler thing. You know, just set up gas chambers and things like that. No, he was insane. That's not how you conquer a nation. 
Nebuchadnezzar knew what he was doing. You go in, you subdue the government, you set up a puppet kingdom, and then they pay taxes to you. You keep the land, you get the crops, you get whatever minerals they mine, you get you know the passageway to other territories you might conquer. It serves you no purpose at all to just lay waste, burn it down and salt the earth where the ground was. You don't do that. You conquer them and make them serve you to expand the, the boundaries of your empire. So you set up a vassal state. You set up this, this puppet kingdom, shadow, not shadow, this government that serves you entirely. And so you take hostages to ensure that government stays cooperative. I've got your royal family. You start falling out of line, it's off with their heads. So what he's doing here makes perfect sense. It's not out of the ordinary at all. So take these children of Israel, in particular of the royal seed um, and of the princes, the family of the king. Verse 4, here's how we describe them. Children in whom was no blemish, but were well favored in, and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. What Nebuchadnezzar wants of them are not jesters, not, you know, party trick doers, but he wanted secretaries, he wanted spokesmen, he wanted people who would record his decrees and deliver the messages, he wanted people who would introduce delegates who came to see him, he wanted people who would work in the king's court. And so they needed to look the part, they needed to be smart enough to learn the language, because this is Chaldean language, not Hebrew that they would know. So he wanted a special kind of person. They needed to be well-looking, well-mannered, and you know, capable young people. And that's sure enough, I'm gonna say as luck would have it, but it's not luck, it's providence. They're gonna get Daniel and the three. Verse five, the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, emphasis on he, his choice drink. So nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof, they might stand before the king. So here's the long plan. We're going to give you three years to get these guys up to snuff, make sure in three years they know the language, in three years they know the culture, in three years they look the part, because, you know, they've been under siege for a little while, they're probably a little scrawny, and a long journey from here to there, from there to here. So let's make sure we fatten them up, because a fat servant, you might think, oh, why would you want a fat servant? Because it shows how well fed they are, which reflects nicely on the king. It's all about image when you're working in the king's court. So let's fatten them up, give them the king's best food, give them the king's best drink. Let's make sure they learn the king's language. Let's make sure they know the king's culture so they can work in the office court of the king. Now you might think this is just, you know, boilerplate. What's the point of all this? Why am I reading this boring stuff? This is, this is a setup. This is the very first challenge that this obstinate, defiant to his God, Daniel, is going to face. Because they're going to try and serve him the king's food. And he's going to have a problem with that. We'll get there in just a second. Let's learn who we're talking about, though. Verse number six. Among these were the children of Judah named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel, his name means God is my judge. Hananiah, his name means God is gracious. Mishael, his name means who is like God or who could compare to God. Azariah, his name means God has helped or God is a helper. In fact, no, it's, it's a past tense word. God has helped. So those four were taken probably others too, to be made attendants um, to the king, aides, um, clerks, secretaries of a sort to the king. I know there are others, but these are the four emphasized here because these are the four we're going to read about throughout the book. Verse number seven. Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. We call him the prince of the eunuchs, but he's like 
if this was an administration, he's the secretary of the eunuchs. He's the, you know, the, if it was Europe, the minister of the eunuchs, which is a sad job to have, but that's his job. He's the minister of the guy who are the slaves who work in the king's court. That's his job to oversee them. Unto them he gave them names, because he sees Daniel and he says, no, we're not going to have some Hebrew name here. This is a Chaldean court. You must have a Chaldean name. You will be Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, you will be Shadrach. To Mishael, you'll be Meshach. To Azariah, you will be Abednego. Daniel became Belteshazzar, protector of Baal, the primary deity of the Babylonians. Hananiah became Shadrach, the command of Aku, Shadrach, Aku, Aku, the command of Aku. Aku was the moon god of the Babylonians. So it's like, it's a way of saying, um, look at the authority of Aku. Mishael became Meshach. Who is like Aku? Meshach, Aku, same idea. Who is, who could compare to Aku? Again, you see the similarity? His original name meant, who could compare to God? Well, that won't work, but I like the idea. We'll call you, who can compare to Aku? Who can compare to the moon god? Take the idea and bastardize it. Finally, Azariah, Abednego, which means servant of um, Nebo or Nego. Abednego. And does anybody's translation say B-O instead of G-O at the end of that name? Everybody says G-O. So the, the, the Chaldean god would have been uh, ne, uh, Nebo, Nebo with a B, but somehow languages evolve and it, the B became a G. So it, I, I suppose it would have been like Abednego, but it's become in our vernacular Abednego. But uh, anyway, Nebo or Nego, however you pronounce it, was the Babylonian god of wisdom and writing, which makes sense when you think he's going to be a scribe, he's going to be a secretary to the king. So again, look at what they did. Look at the way they took the names and they twisted them, bastardized them, uh, you know, uh, con contorted them, twisted them into something um, obscene. Daniel, God is my judge. But in Babylon, he has to be the protector. I am the protector of Baal. God is his judge, but I will protect this false god. Take it and twist it. Hananiah is a, a name that describes the grace and the mercy of God, but here he has to have a name that speaks to the authority and the command and the power, the ugliness of the moon god. Mishael, the uniqueness of God. But now he has to have a name that means the uniqueness of some god of the moon, which is not even unique. Because there's the sun. The sun will come up tomorrow, as you learn. What is it, Annie? So, but the moon god is only there for a few hours in the day. So who is like the moon god? Well, the moon god has to reflect the sun god, if I know my science. Who is like Jehovah? That's a, that's a name that means something. All they did was they just watered it down. But that was the idea. And Azariah had a name that meant God was a helper to the people. Instead, he's given a name that reminds them that they are now slaves to their false god, a taskmaster god. Incidentally, when I talk about those three, especially when you get to um, the fiery furnace story, unless I'm quoting where they describe them, I will always call them Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I don't know how it became where we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Call them by their real names because those are the names they were willing to die holding. They didn't conform to the world. Daniel 1.8. But Daniel purposed in his heart. Let's remember what we just read. Here's the king's meat. Here's the king's drink. Get fat like the king is fat. And Daniel looks at the, di the, you know, the diet provided for him. And verse 8 says, He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank because it was unclean to the Jew. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. I'm not going to eat this because I don't want to defile myself. I think it's curious the way he phrases it. 
You want me to look my best. You want me to be in top, tip-top shape. Well, I don't want to defile myself. Well, he's going to hear that. Just char- state it the way it is. As charged as that statement is, he's going to think, well, I don't want you to defile yourself either. You know, so what's the problem? Well, he's, he's about to find out what the problem is. Specifically, the Babylonians, the way they fixed their meat was they strangled the meat, which was a specific thing that was forbidden in the law of Moses. You had to, you had to execute the animal and serve it and cook it a certain way. Of course, they also ate meat offered to idols, which was a no-no to the Jews as well. So he had, he had multiple reasons, Daniel did, not to eat the king's meat. I would just point out, he speaks up. Nobody else speaks up. A lot of other people, and these are the cream of the crop of the Judeans. They don't seem to have a problem with it. They're, ha- they're having the win in Rome, do as the Romans do mindset. We're here, we have to eat, so we'll eat. And Daniel says, hmm, no, I can't eat this. So what does Daniel do? Does Daniel request, does Daniel request, you know, a steak dinner cooked the way he wants it? Because I'm not going to eat your food. I have a religious objection, so I will have the best equivalent. That's not what he's going to suggest. And that's a lesson for us as we have to take stands and oppose things too. But we'll get there. Verse 9. God had brought Daniel into favor, and the King James says tender love, uh, affection, kind of a motherly affection, a shepherd to a sheep kind of affection. This prince of the eunuch was looking out for him. Was in, over the course of these three years, wanted the best for them, wanted to do his job well and start to, you know, grow uh, affectionate toward these these guys. So that's what he's saying here: into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. So. If you live faithful to God, the world will be evil, the world will be wicked. But you read it here, you read it in in Peter's writing, you also will kind of shame them into doing good around you. I don't know if you've ever encountered that in high school or in job settings when there's people around you. If you live obviously faithful lives, you will find them apologizing to you when they curse around you. I can't tell you how many times in high school people would say they were sorry to me when they took the Lord's name in vain. Like, you're not, it's not my name in vain. I appreciate the gesture, though. And the fact that they would do that around me because they knew I would never do that, that spoke something to them. Same kind of idea. Here's this pagan who has no problem eating the king's meat. Here's Daniel saying, I can't eat this meat, and it causes a conflict within him. Something has to be done about this. Look at verse 10. We have five minutes. The prince of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king. I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your meat and drink. It's his decision. For why should he see your faces worse, liking than the children of your own, which of your own sort? Then shall he make me in danger, uh, make me in danger my head to the king. In other words, if after three years I let you not eat the king's meat, you're going to walk up to the king for the inspection. When the king's going to look at his servants that I'm supposed to be in charge of to make sure they've prepared themselves for my work, the work of the, the servants of the king. And I'm going to see, or he's going to see these sickly, pale doesn't even eat meat, sad vegan people, as vegans are, these sad, sickly, gray-skinned people <laughs> who refuse to eat even a piece of chicken. And he's going to say, what, what am I paying you for, Mazar, which is his name, we'll find out later. What am I paying you for if you haven't even prepared these guys? It's off with your head. And so everybody's going to die. So he feels for them, but he also doesn't want to lose his own head. So he says, I fear for my king, because he told me this is your diet. And you're saying you can't eat it. We have a problem here. Verse 11. Then Daniel Daniel said to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What does he say? Verse 12. Prove your servants. I I dare you. A double dog dare you. Put it to the test. I beseech you, prove us for 10 days. 
and then in that time give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Pulse, the King James says. What does your Bible say they want to eat? Vegetables. Vegetables? Oh, that is way too sanitary. It is it is a paste of beans and uh, like lentils. It is it is just the saddest thing you could ever eat. Like you uh, you could enjoy a crispy apple. Right? You can enjoy some steamed broccoli. If you cook it right, you can enjoy even, you can enjoy some asparagus. Like we could, we could work up, if necessary, a nice vegetarian dish for ourselves. It'd be sad, but we could eat it, okay? <laughs> These guys, who I would remind you are currently just teenagers, are saying we will just eat mashed up, smushed down Brussels sprouts, essentially. Like you can't get a teenager to eat his vegetables voluntarily when they're served in the best of conditions with like the meat juice soaking it up and stuff at the bottom. I'm getting real hungry. I've not eaten since like 11. These teenagers are saying, this Daniel is saying, I want the worst. And I promise you, I would rather eat the worst than eat the best of the king's food. Like we can't appreciate this because here in America, it's, yeah, you can go to McDonald's and it's not the best quality, but you can get a lot of, of serviceable food at McDonald's, right? You can get the quantity, a quantity which was out of this world to the people here. Not to the king, but to the common person in Babylon, especially the slave Judean in Babylon. You, you give them $5 and then at McDonald's, they're eating for 10 years, okay? They just did not have what we have. Daniel is eating from the king's plate. He is eating the king's bounty, the king's feast, or at least he has the option to. And he says, but this is against my religion. This is against my God. And I can see you and I can see your sword and I can see your angry face and I can't see my God, but I know he's real and I'm not going to anger him by eating his forbidden food. I will not eat it. So I will have your second best option, please. No, he doesn't say that. That's what we sometimes will say. That's what I've seen my brethren do and complain on Facebook. I wouldn't do that. I refuse to do that. They need to accommodate me and accommodate my religious preferences. No one has to accommodate you, jack squat. If it's not right for you to do, then don't do it and suffer. That's half the equation of Christianity. Come take up your what? Pillow? And follow me. What does he say? Cross is an instrument of torture and death, people. But brethren today are like, I'm going to take up my pillow and follow him when it is convenient to. No, Daniel says, I will have the cross, please, because the pillow is too nice and it's against my religion. That's the lesson. So we're going to stop here. And he says, give us 10 days eating the worst with the providence of God behind us. We will come out better, fatter and healthier than all the other servants. Spoiler alert. They will. We'll pick it up there next week. Daniel 1, verse 13. Thanks, you guys, very much. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin 414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then. But for the most part, I put everything behind a massive, giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash 
Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, dash Martin 414, and hit subscribe for a buck, and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.